You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. All right. Um, I'm going to be, I'm going to give you some information up front about today's sermon. This is, these type of sermons are always very difficult for me to preach because this is more of a topical sermon than a verse by verse expository type sermon. They're difficult because they're very difficult to study for because it involves having to look at what scripture teaches overall about a certain topic. So it's, it's a lot easier to go to 1 Thessalonians, lock yourself down to a couple of verses and know, okay, my goal for this week or for the next couple of days is to understand what these verses mean. To approach a topic in scripture and say, okay, I've got a week or so, a few days to figure out what scripture says about a topic uh, can be very difficult. And so um, I always approach these type of sermons with, with a lot of caution because I think it's important to make sure that I communicate a clear and accurate picture of what the Bible has to say about certain topics. Also, I'm going to tell you up front, today may at times feel more like you're sitting in a theological class more than you are a Sunday-type sermon. Most sermons are typically driven towards application. What are we going to do with what this verse tells us to do? Today, up front, I'm telling you this has far more to do with giving you additional truth to trust in. Remember, we've talked about how to increase your faith, that faith at its simplest definition is trusting truth, trusting truth about God. And so in order to increase our faith, in order to increase our trust, we need more truth to trust in. So today I'm giving you additional truth about who God is to hopefully, ideally, the application for today is to trust him more. I mean, it's very relevant for what we've already discussed today, that there are times when um, things are happening that don't make sense from our perspective. Things are taking place that we're not sure where God fits into that and what God's doing in the midst of those situations. But it's in those type of situations that we have got to trust God to the fullest, that, that we need that truth to be able to cling to during times where we're uncertain because those are the times when we need that truth the most. And I was sitting in the back, you know, as we're singing about Christmas and just, you know, kind of going back and thinking about those children who were killed by Herod and what the families were going through in the midst of that. You know, some of them weren't even clued into the fact that this was a divine night that had just recently taken place in the last year or two. That the Savior of the world, the Messiah, had come. You know, and we can sit there and question and wonder, why does, why does God tell Mary and Joseph, hey, you got to get out of town because Herod's about to start killing children and doesn't seem to tell anybody else to get out of town? Why does God do that? In fact, why does God even allow the wise men to go to Herod? If, if the wise men don't come to Herod, he may never even have been clued into the fact that the Messiah was born. It's the wise men that show up that say, hey, we've heard that the, the king has been born. And then Herod starts his killing spree. We can question and wonder, why does God do this? Why does God choose to do it this way? And at some point, we have to come to the, to the conclusion that we don't fully know. We will probably never fully know. But we can trust. We can trust God in those situations when we don't know. Because the al alternatives are unspeakable. It, it never makes sense to me why people would, would look at that picture of what Christianity says about God. There's a God who's good, who's in control, that permits evil. Look at that and say, I'm dissatisfied with that God. I think that there may not even be a God. I mean, is that more hopeful? Is that a more hopeful situation to say, 
I'd rather there not even be a God than there be a God that's in control that does things that I just don't always understand. I always want to be in a situation where God doesn't make sense to me all the time. Because the moment that he makes sense, I think he becomes not God. If he does everything in a way that makes sense to me and I understand him fully, I'm not sure that you can really call him God in that situation anymore. So, so the, the alternate options, that there is no God or that there's a God who's not in control, I mean, I don't know why anybody would want to go down that path and reach that conclusion and say, okay, now I'm content that, that I serve a God who's not in control. That makes more sense to me. Those, those alternate options are no good. They're no good. And yes, the, the, the Christian perspective, the Christian view of who God is that flows from his word doesn't have all, always have all the answers. Why does God do it this way? Why does God allow this to happen? But it provides the hope that we need in the midst of those situations, that he's good, that he's in control, he's mysterious. He has plans that he's working. Scripture tells us that those plans come into being at the exact time that he wants them to. But he doesn't always feel obligated to let us know about it. And we can be content with that. So today's sermon is all about increasing your trust in the truth of God's word. If there's no other application for today, it's simply that you trust God more, that you love Jesus more. As we see him to be the eternal God. Jesus, our eternal God. It's so important that our theology of Jesus is right. It's so important that our theology of Jesus is right. We might be wrong about other things, and I was sharing with somebody recently, I fully expect to get to heaven one day and find out that I was, I was dead wrong on some key issues in the Bible. Um, I hope they're minimal. I hope they're not as, as many as there potentially could be. But I have no doubts that I am wrong about certain portions of Scripture. What I can't be wrong about is Jesus. What I can't be wrong about is Jesus. It has eternal consequences. There are people who will knock on your door at some point who will claim that they have the right answers about Jesus. The Mormons will knock on the door and claim that he's a created being, that, he, that he's your brother, and that, that we were all brothers and sisters in heaven at one point, and that we too can attain that same type of status of, of deity. Jehovah's Witnesses will knock on your door and say that Jesus is a created being, that he used to be the archangel Michael, that he's not equal with God. We can't afford to be wrong about our theology about Jesus. Today is, is, is an attempt to make sure that we, we, we stay on the same page about who Jesus is. Because sometimes, I don't know about you, but for sometimes me, I start to compart, compartmentalize the Trinity. You know, Old Testament, God the Father. Then Jesus shows up. Then we've got the Holy Spirit, and, and then Jesus is in heaven, but the Holy Spirit's here. And I kind of split the Trinity. I dissect the Trinity and think of it in terms of three different gods sometimes, and that's not the case. That's not what Scripture portrays to us. Scripture is very clear that Jesus is eternal. Jesus was there in the beginning. But he's the eternal God. And we're going to see that today. And we're going to see, hopefully, hopefully open your eyes a little bit to how active Jesus was in the Old Testament. That he's certainly not silent. That in the hope of the first coming, it wasn't that Jesus was completely unknown to the people. They had received glimpses of Jesus. They knew what to hope for. They knew something great was coming. First John chapter 4, I told you we would start there, and we're going to be all over the place. We're going to be heavy in the Old Testament today, um, which I'm excited about because we don't give enough attention to the Old Testament like we should. First John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. 
For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. The dangers of a bad theology of Jesus. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you just want to jot these down and not try to turn to them all, that's, that's, that's okay. Um, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We can't believe in something that we're wrong about and it'd be okay. We, we, we have to have a right theology of Jesus because we're told to confess him and to believe in him for our salvation. If my understanding of who he is is wrong, then I can't apply that verse the way that I'm supposed to. I've got to believe in the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus that is communicated to us because it's he that's my source of salvation. And then Galatians 3, 21 through 22. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Let's start by looking at who is Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the second person of the Trinity. We understand God the Father to be the first person, Jesus to be the second person, Holy Spirit to be the third person. He's the visible God. He's the visible God. When we have God manifested in a, in a, in a way that we can uh, identify him through sight. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The Bible tells us that no one can see God, God the Father. So when we have instances where people are seeing God, New Testament communicates this, that Jesus is the exact imprint. He is God. And he is God in visible form to us. We see this specifically in the New Testament with what we call the Incarnation. The incarnation. Incarnation is a, is a big word. It's a big word that simply means becoming flesh. When we talk about Jesus' incarnation, it's simply in reference to him, the God, the eternal God, becoming human flesh. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas time. The God becoming man, becoming flesh. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the eternal one. He's the eternal one. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, according to Hebrews 13.8. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's another common misconception about God, that, that the God of the Old Testament different than the God of the New Testament. God of the Old Testament, wrath. God of the New Testament, love. God of the Old Testament, bad temper. God of the New Testament, long-suffering and patient and kind. Unfortunately, sometimes we, we, we identify the stories of the Old Testament, the teachings of the New Testament, and we, we maybe even out realizing it at times, we believe in two different gods. There's a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament, and yet Scripture is very clear, it's the same God, same yesterday, today, and forever. The God of the Old Testament is the same God that we worship in the New Testament. And I want to specifically look at today how the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, is the same in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. He doesn't come into existence at Christmas time. Let's make sure that our kids never get that, that perception that Jesus began to exist at that first Christmas. He's eternal. He's the eternal God. 
He became flesh at Christmas. He became a man. Me and Tyson were talking about this before, before the service today. He hasn't always been a man. It's correct to say that Jesus has not always been human. He's not always been man. But he always will be man now. Make sure you get that. Jesus has not always been man. He wasn't a man in the Old Testament. He was God. In the New Testament, he becomes, he, he adds to his deity by taking on humanity. He becomes the God-man. We call that the, the hypostatic union of, of both deity and humanity. Philippians 2 says he will always be man. He has a physical body in heaven right now, a glorified body that's our hope that we get a glorified body as well. He will always occupy that body. He will always have those scars the crucifixion okay correct theology of jesus that's important in the old testament in your notes he's the pre-incarnate jesus the pre-incarnate jesus that's before the incarnation pre-incarnate jesus in the new testament he's the god man jesus in the new testament he's the god man jesus Now, we can't look at Jesus in the Old Testament without first looking at the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And this has been a, a good study for me, an exciting study for me, because I'll be honest, this whole angel of the Lord thing has been a confusing thing for me for a long time. And I was sitting at McDonald's last night on the phone with one of our external elders saying, this still doesn't make sense to me. I need you to help clarify this. Um, and it's so good to see Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I think we see that through this figure in the Old Testament that is most oftentimes identified as the angel of the Lord. Now, I want to show you from Scripture why I believe the angel of the Lord is absolutely, without a doubt, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Okay? Angel of the Lord, just so we're all on the same page, we're talking about the fourth person in the fiery furnace. Okay? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're hanging out in there. They're not being burned up. Everybody's looking in. Hey, how many people we throw in there? Hey, we threw in three. Well, there's four in there. It looks like the son of the gods. Um, and he's referred to as an angel. Okay? So, angel of the Lord, these, and we call these Christophanies. These are appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament before he's a man. And I want to show you from Scripture, I think, it's, I think it's very clear that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is without a doubt Jesus. At least in the incidences that we're going to look at today. Okay? <laughs> Um, the instances that I picked the ones that I felt like were very clear who we're talking about here This isn't Michael. This isn't Gabriel. This is Jesus This is Jesus and I think we're going to see pretty clearly the 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 eternal God the one that we worship Jesus Christ Very active in the Old Testament a couple reasons that I would say the angel of the Lord is Jesus and can be Jesus without that being Blasphemous to say that an angel is Jesus angel in scripture simply means messenger it Simply means messenger. I want to show you another passage in the old testament where angel is used in a way that does not mean the the angel that we think of with wings and halos malachi chapter 3 verse 1 malachi chapter 3 verse 1 this is prophecy about the coming messiah and we learn about john the baptist it says behold i send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now the term messenger there is used for two different people, and it's the word for angel. It's the word for angel. Now we find out in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10, it's what we call a divine hermeneutic. This is when New Testament author sheds light on what the Old Testament was talking about. Matthew chapter 11, verse 10. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. This is Jesus talking. He says, you remember that prophecy in Malachi about God sending a messenger to prepare the way for the messenger, basically? He said that was about John the Baptist. So the, the word used in the Old Testament there would, would be calling John the Baptist an angel. Now, we don't believe that John the Baptist had wings and had a halo. We don't put him in the category of Gabriel and, and Michael. It simply means messenger, and John the Baptist was sent as a messenger from God to prepare the way for the messenger. So I would argue that when we talk about angel of the Lord, we're strictly identifying Jesus' role in that situation. He is acting and functioning as a messenger of God the Father. He is not um, an angel in the way that the Jehovah's Witnesses would want to claim him to be. Okay, so kind of be clear about that. Angel is simply used as a word for messenger. There are angelic beings that also function in that role. Gabriel coming to announce the birth of Jesus. It's an angelic being acting as an angel or a messenger. All right? Angels in Scripture always defer worship. While we're going to see today, the angel of the Lord accepts it. That's a huge difference. Huge difference. Angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is not an angel like we think of. Because the angel in the Old Testament readily accepts worship. Whereas we see in the New Testament, when angels are trying to be worshipped, they always defer the worship to Jesus. Revelation 19.10, it's a good example. John the Apostle, I mean, he's just being blown away by all this stuff he's seeing. He doesn't really know what to do. I mean, he's just like, I'm just blown away by this. In 19 verse 10, he says, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. This angel that's kind of showing, this angelic being kind of showing John around. He says, I bowed down to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This happens again in chapter 22. He tries to bow down and worship this angel again. In uh, 22 verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. This angel says, you cannot worship me. I'm not, I'm not worthy of that worship. I don't hold that type of worth. In Joshua chapter 5, though, Joshua chapter 5, we've made the transition from Moses being the leader of Israel to Joshua being the, the leader of Israel now. So, so, so Joshua's about to take the people into Canaan. They're about to attack Jericho. But it's as though God the Father says, you know what? You need the same type of encounter that Moses got at the burning bush. It says in verse 13 of chapter 5, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him 
with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And this angel says, this, this, this messenger says, I'm not really for you or against you, you're for me. Like, like I'm the commander here. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. You can't have an angel, you can't have a mere man saying to take off your feet, you're on holy ground. Joshua's worshipping this, this, this being, he's worshipping this appearance. And, and the response is the same that we get at the burning bush. This is appropriate. This is right. Take off your feet. Take off your shoes. <laughs> be hard to take off your feet. <laughs> take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. I mean, it parallels perfectly the burning bush. And we're going to see in a minute, the burning bush is Jesus. The burning bush is Jesus. We're going to see in a minute how, how God reveals himself in that way. So angels defer worship. Angel of the Lord accepts it. Um... The angel of the Lord and Yahweh are used interchangeably, and that's what we're going to see in some of these verses. At, at some points, the, the person who's interacting with the angel of the Lord is referring to him as angel of the Lord, and then he'll, he'll revert over and start calling him God or Yahweh. I mean, he just uses the terms interchangeably uh, as though they're co-equal. Okay? So that's another support for why I would say that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is Jesus. And then lastly, the angel of the Lord doesn't appear after the incarnation of Christ. We've got multiple, multiple appearances in the Old Testament. Angel of the Lord, angel of the Lord, angel of the Lord. And then it just stops in the New Testament. Because Jesus is now the God-man. He's become incarnate. He doesn't reveal himself as the angel of the Lord anymore. He reveals himself as the God-man. But if all this angel talk makes you a little nervous, we're still, we're not calling Jesus an angel by any means. Because Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, um, talking about God the Father, again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Hebrews chapter 1 is all about how Jesus is better than angels. The whole book of Hebrews is about how Jesus is better than everything. Specifically, chapter 1 is how he's better than angels. He's the best messenger of God the Father. He is the superior messenger of God the Father. All other messengers, all other uh, angelic beings worship the one true eternal God. All right? Um, this is like a theology class. If you've got a question, you can stop me and raise your hand, and I'll answer it on the spot if we need to, because it's a lot of stuff, um, but we're going somewhere with it, because I want you to see that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. All right, so angel of the Lord. We're, we're working off the premise that this is Jesus, the, the second person of the Trinity. We're going to see more clearly now as we start looking at some incidences where the angel of the Lord shows up that it is Jesus. Okay, First, before we get into that, Jesus of the Old Testament. There's promises about Jesus that are given to God's people. Promises about that first coming and then ultimately the second coming of Jesus. The first promise um, is Genesis 3.15, a Messiah to destroy our adversary a Messiah to destroy our adversary. 
This is the first mention of Jesus in the Bible, Genesis 3.15. It's the first clear reference to Jesus. Now, we learn from John chapter 1 that obviously Jesus was in the beginning. He's the creator. So you go to Genesis 1.1 and you have Jesus there. But this is the first reference to Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior, Genesis 3.15. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first mention of the gospel, basically. And that, that scene plays out where, where uh, punishment is being handed down to, to Adam and to Eve and to Satan. But he starts with Satan, and the communication to Satan is, I'm sending someone through the seed of this woman who will ultimately defeat you. I mean, this is the ultimate hope that God gives, that in the midst of evil, in the midst of evil, God communicates hope and says, I'm sending someone to destroy evil. I'm sending you someone that's going to destroy you, Satan, that's going to rescue mankind back to me. The promise of a Messiah who doesn't just come to save us from our sins. He comes to destroy evil. He comes to rid the world of evil. And that promise is given to Satan that his time is now limited. So even when we see events like that, what happened on Friday, we can take comfort in the fact that Satan has been given a timetable. He has been given a countdown to where this will stop that this will ultimately stop forever. And that promise starts in the very beginning. Second, the second promise that we have, a Messiah to save all peoples. A Messiah to save all peoples. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. This is the Abrahamic covenant. God gives this promise to Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going I'm to bless you and make your name great. I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. Then the, the big ultimate climax of that covenant is I'm going to make you a blessing to all nations. I'm going to make you a blessing to all nations. That's a reference to the Messiah. It's a promise to Abraham that the Messiah comes through Eve. Now let me catch you up on the genealogy. The Messiah is coming through you, Abraham. You will bless the entire world through your seed. Jesus is coming through you. And Jesus comes to save not just Israelites, not just Jewish people. He comes to save all nations, all nations. That's a promise that we have in Scripture. And then lastly, a Messiah to reign forever. A Messiah to reign forever. In 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 1, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, this is talking about David, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? This is conversations going on about whether or not the temple needs to be built or not. And David wants to build the temple, and God's trying to emphasize that the temple's not really what's important. If you skip down... Verse 9, and I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. God talking to David. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. 
Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now the immediate context is Solomon is obviously raised up to be the next king of Israel. But the promise there is that the reign will last forever for one of David's descendants. So now we get further clarification. The Messiah comes from Eve. The Messiah comes from Abraham. The Messiah comes from David. And we get different pictures of what he's to do. He's to destroy Satan. He's to bring salvation to everybody. And he's to reign as a king. He's the authority. He's the leadership that we will submit to forever. And when he comes, he makes everything right. These are the type of promises that began to swell up in the people, uh, people of God as they looked forward to this figure that was supposed to come and accomplish all these purposes. And in the midst of these promises, they begin to see glimpses of this figure, glimpses of this promised one that the Father has said will be sent to them. In your notes there under glimpses, Jesus is the active fulfiller of the Father's will. That's the role that Jesus seems to play in the the relationship of the Trinity. He fulfills the plans that God the Father has. He comes to earth to initiate and to, to make these things happen. That God the Father creates, but he creates through the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. He fulfills the Father's will. First of all, he's the creator and he's the sustainer. We look to the New Testament to see who Jesus was in the Old Testament. In John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jehovah's Witnesses want to say that this is two separate beings, that there's God the Father and there's Jesus. And they'd like to say that they affirm that Jesus created everything. The only problem is it says that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. If he's a created being, then you can't have everything that was made made through him. Because obviously somebody would have had to make Jesus. But he's eternal. And this this passage affirms that he's eternal. That everything that's created, everything that's created is created by Jesus, which means he can't be created if he's the creator of everything. He's the eternal God. He's the creator. But not only is he the creator, he's the sustainer. Colossians chapter 1. These are heavy theological passages about Jesus that I wish we had more time to go into in depth. But just to kind of give you an overview appreciation of who we're talking about, who we worship as our Savior. He's the sustainer. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together. 
Everything that we have, creation, life, everything is held together by Jesus Christ. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. He's fully God. He's the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1. I encourage you to write that down and, and just read through um, the entire chapter. We'll look briefly at the very beginning. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature means he possesses all the attributes of who God is. He's not secondary. He's not inferior. We don't view the Trinity as like a, a tier of, of who's got more power. He's the exact imprint. He has everything that we think of when we think of God the Father. The exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Not only is he the creator and sustainer, he's the running theme of the Old Testament. He's the running theme of the Old Testament. You can't look at the Old Testament and really understand what's going on there if you don't look at it through the lens of Jesus. You had people who tried to do that. You had people who were confused about the Old Testament. And Jesus himself has to say, it's all about me, people. It's all about me. Luke chapter 24 Verse 13, this is after the resurrection. you got two of the disciples who are walking to this village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, and while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And so they start talking, and, and they're kind of oblivious to, to the fact that this is Jesus, and they're talking about the events of that day, and hey, there's a rumor going around that Jesus is back from the dead, but they're hesitant to believe it. They're not sure what to do with it. Jesus is clarifying to them the events and, and the, the reason for the events. And then we see down in verse 27. Let's look at verse 25. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? It's almost like Jesus says, you should have known that I had to die. The prophets pointed to this type of Messiah. Verse 27, beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, Moses wrote the first five books of the, the Old Testament, right? So beginning with Genesis and through all the prophets, Jesus interprets to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Imagine being a part of that Bible study when Jesus sits down and says, open up your Bibles to Genesis 1-1 and let me talk to you about who I am all through the Old Testament. And he just begins to instruct them about how he's the running theme, that everything points to him. 1 Peter 1, 17 through 21. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter says God knew what was going to happen. He knew the plans for Jesus before the foundations of the world. Jesus is not plan B. The cross is not plan B. God doesn't react to our sin. He fully knew what was going to happen when he created everything. Jesus was known before the foundation of the world, the purpose of what the second person of the Trinity would do. He's the visible messenger, the physical revelation of God. Third thing in your notes. He's the creator and sustainer. He's the running theme. He's the visible messenger, the physical revelation of God. Now what I want to do is I want to show you through the appearances of the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus, I want to show you the characteristics, the attributes that the angel of the Lord demonstrates. The exact same things that Jesus demonstrates in the New Testament to us. I want you to see that he's the same yesterday as he is today. The angel of the Lord is Jesus, and he functions like Jesus. He does things like Jesus. He sees things like Jesus, and it's the same Jesus that we trust in today. First of all, he's compassionate. He's compassionate. Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16, kind of the tragedy, tragic story of Sarah and her, um, her discontentment for a time with the fact that God had not given her a child yet. Uh, she calls upon her maidservant, um, Hagar, and says, Husband, why don't you get with Hagar? Maybe y'all can have a child. Maybe God will bless us through that child. So they get pregnant. Hagar's got a child now. Sarah's angry about it, basically. Like she, she changes her mind about her plan and kicks her servant out. Kicks her servant out, and it says... Um, That, she, that she's pushed away, uh, Abraham, verse 6. But Abraham said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Look at, in verse 7, it says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that you cannot be numbered for multitude. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lehel Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. She identifies this figure that's speaking to her as God. It's referred to as the angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Father. But the wordage that's being used here, this figure is saying things that only God can say. No angel has the ability to multiply her descendants. No, no angel has the ability to bless her offspring. This is only words. This is only things, functions that God can accomplish. It's the exact same promises to a degree that God the Father makes to Abraham when he says, I'm going to bless your descendants and make you great. I'm going to give you Isaac. 
Jesus is compassionate here. He doesn't let this woman just get abandoned and forsaken and, and, and just left to her own. He goes to her and says, I'm going to take care of you too. I'm going to take care of you and your family as well. And she responds and says, you're the God of seeing. You're, you're the God who knows everything. You're the God that sees everything. We don't see this angel tell her, whoa, 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 don't, don't do that to me. Worship God. We don't see that type of response. She rightly responds. She knows who she's talking to. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. And he's compassionate in the Old Testament just like he is in the New Testament. He's also a provider. He's a provider in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 22. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. This is Abraham sacrificing Isaac, and the angel of the Lord is the one who tells him to stop. Verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. Abraham lived. Beersheba. Jesus responds here. Jesus provides the sacrifice. Just as he provides himself as a sacrifice in the New Testament, he provides the ram as a sacrifice in the Old Testament to spare Isaac. To spare Isaac. Jesus is the provider both in the Old Testament and in the New. Thirdly, he's to be obeyed. We obey Jesus in the New Testament. He is instructed to be obeyed in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 23, Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Children of Israel making their way to the promised land. 21. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary your adversaries so this this instruction here is that god the father is sending this angel this messenger to go before israel as a means of protection but also as a figure to be obeyed in judges chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 now the angel of the lord went up from gilgal to bochum and he said i brought you up from egypt brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? This is the same wordage that was given to the children of Israel before they went into the promised land. Now the angel of the Lord shows back up and is talking to Gideon. 
And the identification is he is saying, I was the one who was sent. You were to obey me. You were to obey me. But look what Gideon goes on to say. So now I say I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. Sorry, this isn't Gideon yet. Um, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So we have the same wordage there going on, and it's the angel of the Lord who's being worshipped here. He's the one that was to be obeyed. It's the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. The pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. He is to be obeyed just like he's to be obeyed in the New Testament. Next, he's the deliverer or the savior. In Exodus chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. So the angel of the Lord is the one that's in the burning bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush has not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of... Remember, this is the angel of the Lord talking. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land how do we know this is jesus i mean it says the angel of the lord maybe it's god the father he's promising salvation from egypt jude chapter jude verse one jude sorry jude chapter one because there's only one verse three beloved although i was very eager to write to you about our common salvation i found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Angel of the Lord appears in the burning bush, says, I've heard your cries, I'm God, I'm going to save you out of Egypt. Jude references this story and says it was Jesus who saved the people out of Egypt. He's the same yesterday, and forever, yesterday, today, and forever. He's the Savior in the Old Testament. He's the Savior in the New Testament. He's the eternal God. In John chapter 8, verse 58, we know the passage where Jesus is dialoguing with the Pharisees. God reveals his name as Yahweh at the burning bush. He says, Moses says, who do I tell him you are? And, and, and God says, you tell them the I am sent you. And then the Pharisees are dialoguing with Jesus, and Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. So they wanted to pick up stones and kill him because they knew what he was saying. They knew he was claiming to be the same God of the burning bush. And the fact is, he is the same God of the burning bush. It's the same Jesus that talked to Moses and declared salvation to God's people. In Judges chapter 6, 
These are all Old Testament active glimpses of who Jesus is. Judges chapter 6, this is where God comes to Gideon. Judges chapter 6, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at, or, at Orpha, which belonged to Joash the Abazirite, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand. Of Midian. Sounds like Gideon is wrestling with some of the same questions that people in our country are wrestling with. If God is real, then where is he? Why is he letting this happen? Why hasn't he stepped in and changed it? Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the land of Midian. Do not I send you? He said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least in my father's house. The Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Skipping down to verse 20, the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes, put them on this rock, and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. So we still continue to see the angel of the Lord being the one that's active in this story. Verse 22, Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be, you, peace, peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then built, Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. To this day it still stands. Jesus in the Old Testament comes proclaiming salvation to Gideon. He says, I'm going to use you to save my people. He's a Jesus that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a God that's concerned about salvation in the Old Testament. As Jesus in the New Testament, he's concerned about salvation for his people as well. Judges chapter 13. This is the birth of Samson. Angel of the Lord comes to announce the birth of Samson to his parents. Verse 21. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. His assessment that this is more than an angel. This isn't, this isn't Gabriel, this isn't Michael. He says, we've seen the angel of the Lord. We're going to die because we've seen God. We know the Father says that no one can see him. The only thing that this can be is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Samson was a deliverer for the people of Israel as well. He's also a redeemer or a rescuer. Man, I really want you to see this connection. And I, I, We'll start moving fast here. Um, Genesis chapter 28, because this ties back in with 1 Thessalonians. And, and when I realized this, I was like, Yes, that's good. That's real good. Um, I don't have to make this try to connect to First Thessalonians. It just does. Genesis chapter 28. This is, um, this is where Jacob goes uh, to Laban to, to live with his uncle. He, he's made Esau mad because he stole the birthright, so he's got to run away. Jacob has a weird dream. Um, Jacob left, in verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba, went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. 
He dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now this is the same type promises given to Abraham. Okay, this isn't a dream. Uh, you skip down. Verse 16, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, set it up for a pillar, and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. He believes he has an encounter with God here in this dream. He wakes up, he identifies it, he says, this is amazing, and he, he establishes an altar here of worship to God. Now, if you skip ahead to Genesis chapter 31, this is still Jacob. Verse 11. Jacob's been mistreated by Laban. God's coming to communicate that he's going to make it right. Verse 11, then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, he's talking to his wives here. He's letting them know about this dream. Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and molted, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Listen to verse 13. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Angel of God says, I was the one that was in that dream. The one that you call God of Bethel, that's me. Now, if you skip ahead to verse chapter 48, Jacob's about to die. He brings Joseph's sons to him to bless him. Genesis chapter 48, verse 8. I promise you it's about to connect to 1 Thessalonians. When Israel, who's Jacob, saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. Remember, Joseph separated from his father because he was sold into slavery in Egypt. So they're being reunited. He said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near to him. He kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, or Jacob said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also and he skipped down to verse 15 he blessed joseph and said the god before whom my fathers abraham and isaac walked the god who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day the angel who has redeemed me from all evil bless the boys and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers abraham and isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth this is the first time the idea of redemption is implied in scripture Jacob's the first one to identify God as a redeemer, a redeemer, a savior. If you skip to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. If you don't hear anything else today, then, then please get this. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. 
Verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The word that Jacob uses for the angel redeeming him is the same word that Paul uses for Jesus rescuing us from God's wrath. It's the same word. It's the same word because it's the same God. And it's the same God doing the same thing that he does in the Old Testament as he does in the New Testament. He's a God of redemption. He's a God of salvation. Jacob, at the end of his life, is praising God, praising the messenger of God, the second person of the Trinity. He says, the angel who redeemed me, the angel who saved me, the messenger of God that saved me. And then Paul attributes that same work. He says, we're waiting on Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come, who redeems us from that wrath to come. That messenger of the Father who's been sent to make his will happen. Same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus doesn't start to do things in the New Testament. He's present in the Old Testament. He's very active in the Old Testament. He's promised, but he's not just a, a mythical promise. He's, he's, he's showing glimpses of what he does all through the Old Testament in this figure as the angel of the Lord. He's our guide and protector. Exodus chapter 13. I, I, I never really picked up on this before. This is the last concept that we'll look at in regards to the angel of the Lord or just pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus. Exodus chapter 13. Verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with them. So they're leaving Egypt. For, Moses, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones with you from here. They moved on. And in verse 21, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud. I mean, look at verse 21. And the Lord, that's Yahweh. Anywhere you see L-O-R-D, all caps, that's the God of the Old Testament. That's Lord, that's Yahweh. Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. So you've got the God of Israel, Yahweh, leading them by a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. Then we find out who this is in Exodus 14, verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Verse 13 says it's Yahweh. Verse 14 says it's the angel of the Lord. It's because it's Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. He's the messenger of the Father. He is the pillar of cloud. He is the pillar of fire in this situation. He is the leader of Israel. And he's our God and protector in the New Testament as well. He stands in place to where the Egyptians cannot get to his people. And he allows them to comfortably cross the Red Sea. And he's our God and he's our protector in the New Testament as well. He's our God and protector in the New Testament as well.
We celebrate his birth. We celebrate him in the New Testament, but he was active in the Old Testament. He becomes obviously more active in the New Testament as he begins to be the plan that God has, God the Father has, as our salvation. We'll go with this real quick. Jesus of the New Testament. He is God, but there's more. He's also man. He's God and he's man. He's the eternal word. He's worthy of our worship. Some passages that you can jot down to look at on your own. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Jesus coming from heaven to earth to be man, to take on the form of man. Hebrews 2, 17 talks about how Jesus coming as man was necessary for our salvation. That without the, the human flesh... He could not stand in our place. He could not be a sacrifice for us. He had to be made like us, yet he's made perfect as a man so that he can be our perfect sacrifice. In um, one just a second, let me see if I want to read this. Matthew. Jot down um, Revelation nineteen thirteen. We see a picture of Jesus. Remember, we called him the Word of God in, in John chapter 1. In Revelation, we're still seeing him as the Word of God in chapter 19, verse 13. Before he returns to, to make things right, it says he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This rider of this white horse is also Jesus. He's God, but he's also man. He came once. You want to jot these verses down? He came once to defeat sin. He came once to defeat sin. Matthew one twenty one says that he'll come to, to save his people from their sins. But there's more. At the second coming, Jesus comes to remove sin. That's what Jesus does with sin at the second coming. He comes to save us from sin at the first coming, but it's at the second coming that he comes to remove it completely. We see glimpses of it happening in the Old Testament. We see glimpses of his protection and his salvation and his deliverance, his instruction, his guidance, his lordship. There's coming a day when, when all those glimpses go away and we get the real thing in bodily form when he returns for his people. No more glimpses, no more promises, no more anticipation. It'll be here. He will be here and everything will be made right and things that happened on Friday will never happen again. Our adversary will be defeated. There'll be people from all nations worshiping him. He'll be the king forever that reigns on David's throne, David's throne for eternity. All those promises will find the fulfillment when Jesus returns. Revelation 21, and we'll end with this. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God was with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. 
told you at the beginning, this doesn't have like a lot of, okay, let's go do this this week type of application. I wanted to show you from the Old Testament that Jesus is very present there. If for no other reason to increase your trust in Jesus for today, I mean, we are hanging on to the hope that Jesus is coming back, that he is compassionate, that he is a savior, that he is a deliverer. And I want you to see that those promises don't start at Christmas with the first coming. That he doesn't come into existence and become the second person of the Trinity. And and that's all we have to go off of is the last 2,000 years. That he's been with us since the beginning. That he's the eternal God. That his first coming was promised, but there's all kinds of glimpses of his activity in the Old Testament. And what he does in the Old Testament is the same as what he does in the New Testament. He's the messenger of God. He's the, the second person of the Trinity who fulfills the Father's will. And ultimately, he will do that at the second coming. And it's, 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 it's hopefully something to keep in mind as you celebrate with your families during this Christmas season that we celebrate the first coming, but may it be something that points us to the hope of the second coming. That it points us to the hope that as great as the first coming is, it's not complete without the second coming. That we're saved from our sins, but we're not saved from the presence of sin until Jesus does return. And that plan started in Genesis 3.15. God says, I'm sending someone. I'm sending someone to, who will ultimately defeat the adversary, Satan. He'll save man back to me. And we see that culminate in Revelation where Jesus does come. And Jesus does make all things new. He's the same yesterday. He's the same today. He's the same forever. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful that that you are a mysterious God that is, that is so hard to understand. God, it confuses me when I read passages where it sounds like somebody's talking to one person and then another person and, and names are being used interchangeably. And God, it's the mystery of the Trinity and knowing that you are one God, three distinct persons without being three separate gods. And I say that and I believe it. God, I confess that I don't always understand it. And God, I confess there's a lot of things that I don't understand about you. There's a lot of things that I don't understand about why you choose to do things that you do. Now, there's times when I cry out like Gideon and say, if you're real, why are you letting this happen? Why have you not come and done something about this? God, there are many people in our nation crying that out today. God, I'm thankful that you have revealed yourself in your word over thousands and thousands of years. That we don't have just a few verses about about you. We don't have a few verses about Jesus the Messiah. That he's the running theme of the Bible. That as we get together with family and friends to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, Father, I pray that we would never, never mistakenly think that Jesus' existence began in a manger. God, I pray that we would be encouraged in seeing that Jesus was active in the Old Testament, that he was present there. It is the eternal God that you've called us to worship. God, I pray that we would be faithful to worship Jesus in the same way that these people that we've looked at in Scripture were faithful to worship Jesus. God, I pray that we would yield our lives to you. God, that we would be faithful to share Jesus with others during this season. God, that we would find the the encouragement and the courage to proclaim Jesus because of the truth that we're trusting about Jesus. God, I don't want to just fill our heads with 
with knowledge and, and theology of who Jesus is just to puff us up so that we feel like we're smart about the Bible. God, my hope is that our faith would increase today because we've seen Jesus more in the Bible. The Jesus that we sing about, the Jesus that we pray to, the Jesus that we worship. God, that you would, you would increase our faith in that Jesus. God, that we would be looking for and longing for the return of your Son to make things right. God, we thank you for the first coming. We praise you for the hope of the second coming when you'll do away with sin completely. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.